You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. John chapter 17, and we're going to finish up uh, the high priestly prayer as it has been called in John chapter 17. And again... That I believe to be the best name for this uh, prayer because it does show us uh, the glory of Christ's role as our high priest, the one who ever lives and intercedes for us. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As I've shared with you the last three weeks, it is the goal of most passages in the Bible as we look at prayer uh, to teach us how to pray or at least to stir our hearts to the need to pray. Um, But this particular passage is unique in its role in showing us the one who prays for us, the one who intercedes in our place that role as high priest who goes directly into the presence of a holy God and brings believers in with him by his blood. And his name is Jesus. We saw that Jesus is the one who intercedes for us, praying for us on our behalf. Intercession is that kind of prayer that pleads with God for a need that only he can meet. When we intercede for someone else, we do so because They are too weak or don't have the words to say or cannot find the strength to plead with God on their own. And so we intercede for them. And this is a picture of what Jesus is doing, not just in a one-time sense, but what Jesus does continually, day and night, before the very throne of God, before the Father. We looked at this main point that we're going to see again here in the passage this morning, and that is that Jesus is continually pleading your case before God and praying for your deepest needs. And I'm so thankful that we are not alone. Amen, church? That we have a Savior who not only can identify with our points of weakness without sin, without his own uh, weakness, he can identify with those things and he pleads our case. So the question then becomes, what does he plead for? What is he praying for? And we have seen this so far in three parts. Two parts, though, relating to Jesus' specific prayer for believers. And last week... We actually saw all four of those petitions in the one passage, verses 20, uh, rather verses 6 through 19, when Jesus prays for the disciples and then by extension, all believers. But here in this passage, he returns to one of those petitions, namely that the church be one. And he prays toward that end. For the church, returning to that one idea and expanding it into uh, all that needs to be prayed for. So we see that in verses 20 through 26. So we want to see that this morning together. If you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And we will again read all of the high priestly prayer, John 17. Begin there with me in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they, may, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Lord Jesus, we could but only echo this prayer this morning to ask that you would sanctify your church, that you would make us one, that you would keep us from the evil one, that you would keep us in your name, and that you would do so for the sake of your glory in all the world. I pray that you would make it so in your church that even as we pray these things and as you intercede for us, that from the instruction in your word and the moving of your Holy Spirit, that these things would become true in our lives as believers, as your church, As this local body and as the universal church, God, may you be glorified through the preaching and through obedience to your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. There's so much packed into this one uh, petition. Uh, But the main point, I don't want you to lose sight of this as we walk through together. Jesus is continually pleading your case before God and praying for your deepest needs. So there's a couple of things that matter when we consider that truth. It matters that Jesus is pleading for someone specifically. Huge reality here that Jesus is not praying for just Uh, A general prayer, praying for the entire world, praying just generally that he's specifically pleading for someone's case in particular. Namely, he's praying for 
believers, those who've believed upon Christ, received his word. We've already seen this come to know and believe that Jesus is the very one sent by God for the salvation of the world. Those who have submitted to his authority, those to whom Jesus has become personal Lord and Savior, who've repented of their sins, who've kept his word. These are the ones that Jesus is praying for. And he says that verse nine, he wants to make mention of that. He says, I'm praying for them and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. But what is interesting is he repeats it again in our text this morning. Verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, meaning these 12, these 11 disciples at the time. I don't ask for these men only. I ask for all of those who will believe in me through their word. And this is where this prayer is so important, because lest we think that it's just about these 11 disciples that Jesus is praying for. This is the moment when we realize that Jesus is, in fact, praying for the entire church universal. Everyone who would ever believe through the preaching of his word, Jesus has prayed for in this moment. And not only has he prayed for in this moment, but he is our great high priest who ever lives and intercedes for us. Jesus is before the very throne of God, and he is pleading our case day in, day out, night in, night out. Jesus is interceding for us, the church. And again, remember that there is an importance to this distinction. It's not just that we should understand it as a part of the passage, but Jesus is in some sense teaching here. He's reminding us of two things. Number one, he's reinforcing what a believer actually is. And I shared with you some very important reasons as to why he makes that distinction. Some things that we need to be clear on about what Jesus prays for. Which leads to the second thing, and that is that his prayer fences in what the believer actually receives. Because Jesus prays some very specific things, and those things are the things that he has effectively promised to do. So he's praying for the things that he's promised, and he's going to deliver on those promises. And those things don't necessarily apply to all people, only to believers. That part is incredibly important as we consider this passage, this third part of Jesus' prayer. Because in our culture today, as you think about our nation politically, as you think about the church, there is an outcry for this one seemingly transcendent value, and that is unity. There is an outcry everywhere we turn for unity politically, for unity ecumenically, that all churches should be together and unified and we should all worship together. And all of these different groups, especially in our nation, are put underneath the banner of Christianity and the banner of church. And you need to know very importantly that when Jesus prays for unity, he's praying for unity among those who are of the same mind, those who are of the same faith. And not everyone that you link arms with, red or blue, and not everyone who names the name of Christ in America is of the same mind or of the same faith. And so this prayer is specifically for Bible-believing, Christ-following Christians. There are five main parts of this prayer, as we've looked at, five main Petitions. The first one is for Jesus himself. In the first five verses, we've seen that. And just by way of reminder, the other four petitions are here for believers specifically in the second part of the prayer. We looked at those last week. Keeping us in Jesus name was that first petition for us. Keeping us from the evil one being guarded from Satan himself. And then third, sanctifying us in the truth. But this final petition for unity is first seen in verse 11. 
interesting. Jesus touches on it, and he actually touches on it out of this desire to keep us in his name. So it's not just this general unity of of loving one another. It is a unity that is in the name of Christ. You see it there in verse 11. Verse 11 talks about keeping us in his name. I'm no longer in the world, Jesus says, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Which name is he talking about? The one that he's given to Christ, that they may be one even as we are one. The unity described here is predicated on the reality that we're talking about unity in the biblical Jesus. Okay, so here's the petition. Make us one. It is that simple. Jesus prayer for the church is to make us one. And he's pleading with the father. He's interceding for us because we are not always strong enough to be one. We don't always act like we're one. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He's going before the throne of God and he is saying, Holy Father, will you Will you make them one? Now, when you think about unity, you cannot leave behind the other petitions. In fact, what is interesting is this one is saved for last. But as you think about the unity of God's people, the unity of God's people is built on the other three things or really the other four things being true. Beginning first and foremost with the glory of God, the glory of Christ's name. But the protection of the saints from the enemy and the sanctifying of the church in truth does not get set aside for the sake of unity. In other words, you don't sacrifice truth on the altar of unity. You follow that? You don't set aside truth so we can love one another. Truth must remain. You don't reduce moral expectation. You don't reduce righteousness, that which the enemy is trying to tempt us away from. You don't reduce that so that we can just be together and not offend anyone and and make sure that, that no one is upset with us. You, you don't reduce the authority of truth, God's word, in order that relationships might be maintained. And yet, as you bring all of those things in tow as a foundation for what it means to be in unity, Jesus gives more attention to this fourth petition for us than he gives to any of the others. There's more textual weight to the, to, the, to the need for the church to be united than any other prayer. Notice it. Verse 11, it begins that they may be one even as we are one. And then verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you might underline some of this. Verse 21, that they may all be one. And he tells how, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. All of those expressions of unity, unity with one another, unity with Christ, unity in Christ, the unity of the Father and the Son all together. Then verse 22, again, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I and them. You and me, that they may be perfect, that they may become, which is interesting there, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus knowing that they're not yet there and he's praying. I I, I want the church to be one just as you and I are one, Father, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Even the final few verses, there is a prayer that doesn't include Unity, but it's the desire for the church to be together with Jesus. You see it? Verse 24, may be with me where I am 
not just there, but seeing his glory. Even the world, though the world does not know you, I know you. These know that you have sent me. There is this call of this of this upward call to heaven, to this final dwelling place where we will be with God forever. It's unity. Not only does it receive more attention than the rest, it carries with it the same urgency and importance as the other three. A a need for Jesus to pray for us on our behalf, pleading with God to make this so. Jesus knows that these men are about to be scattered. He's praying for the 11 disciples and they are about to be the very opposite of together, the very opposite of one. You remember chapter uh, chapter 16, verse 31. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the father is with me. There's going to be something lacking in the disciples when it came to unity. The danger of being scattered as God's people would continue relationally. You continue in the life of the early church. You may remember as you read through the book of Acts. The church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch and the division there was over racial issues. Or you might remember the relationship between Paul and Barnabas when they went, things went sideways between them and they parted ways. Perhaps if you've read the New Testament, you would have recalled the story of the church at Corinth, or the church at Philippi, and the division that was happening within the walls of the local church. That danger of scattering would continue into the second and third centuries as church councils began to form and churches had to make decisions over theological and doctrinal issues that had them divided. It would become political in the years to come as the church began to expand and a millennia later the Uh, The church would divide into the east and to the west. And then as we go into the modern age, you think about even the the division in the Reformation when Protestants began to branch off and then into the modern age when denominations began to form. The church has always had a danger of being divided. Even as I think about our own county. We, by God's grace, are privileged as a church to have the story that we are a church of two churches coming together. Many other churches in our county are the result of churches splitting. It's only by God's grace that we're not in the same position, and it's only by God's grace that we have not yet gotten in the same position. Because unity is an elusive thing in the life of the church. It's dangerous. Division threatens to destroy what God has created. Now, I want to say to you on the basis of God's word and in light of all of those things, that the issues that we battle, namely the doctrines in the early part of the church and later part of the church, and even some of the things that we face today, the issues that we battle are not trivial. Doctrine and theology is worth getting right. Amen, church? It is worth the fight. But those divisions emphasize the very real and present threat of division among us and the need to do everything that we can to preserve relational unity in the church without compromising the truth. And in these final moments, Jesus says, God, I pray that they would be one. Jesus prayed for the church universal, and by extension, Jesus was praying for Southwide Baptist Church that we would be one just as He and the Father are one. This is huge on the heart of Jesus. He's pleading for this. And so as we think about unity, we need to lay a little bit of a foundation, and and we don't have time 
to get underneath this a lot. I would encourage you to read through the, the, the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer again. Read, to, read through your Bible and see this big picture of unity because it is everywhere. But I want to give you just two other texts as a foundation, as a large slab of concrete underneath what Jesus is doing here. And the first one is, they're both in Ephesians, by the way. The first one is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And I've written this down. I want you to just follow along with me. We're not going to take the time to turn. But there are two other truths in addition to this praying truth that you need to see to understand what Jesus is doing here. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentile, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, remember you, by the way, all of us in this room, most likely at this point, Gentiles. He says, remember that at one time or at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're without Christ this morning, that describes your condition. All of those who are in Christ, by God's grace, you've been saved. But this is who you were. Separation, distant from God. There was no unity with God. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, how is it that a sinful man can be restored to a holy God? He says in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself, listen, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let me just encourage you to read the rest of that on your own. Here is the picture. We as sinners are separated from a holy God. And what God did in Christ is he broke down the separation between us and a holy God. He made a way for sinners to come into the presence of God to be forgiven of our sin and to receive eternal life. He did that through the blood of Jesus, the one who is our high priest, the one who in John 17 is praying, interceding for us. He broke it down so that we can be made right with God and restored to him in his very presence. But in the same way, his blood also purchased the unity of the church. He took what were Gentiles and Jews and brought them together in one people so that there was no longer division between them and so that there would be one people of every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship the Father for all of eternity. Jesus, listen, purchased the unity of Southwide Baptist Church with his blood. That is huge. You, you ask, does unity really matter? I mean, does it really matter that we're together? We all love Jesus, but sometimes we don't like each other very much. And I would say to you, that Jesus, it was so important to Jesus that he prayed for it and he purchased it with his blood. But not only that, we take part in it. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Not only does Jesus, has Jesus purchased the unity of the church, Jesus commands the unity of the church. Chapter 4, verse 1 the Bible says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, what is that manner is the question. We're to walk in this way. What is this way? Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Listen to verse three, eager, not hesitant. Not even begrudgingly obeying this, but 
eager, we are zealous to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That says two things. We want to be one in the truth and we want to be one in our relationship. And we're maintaining that. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The unity that Jesus purchased and Jesus reflects through his character with the Father, that unity is worth our obeying his command to be in unity. But we can't do it alone. And this is where John 17 is so helpful. When you put John 17 on the foundation of what the Bible teaches about unity, we see that Jesus prays for the unity of the church and we need him interceding for us. We don't by nature get along. I I don't know uh, how long you all have been married or had children, but it doesn't take long to see it, does it? And if you've been a part of any church, you'll know that all churches have conflict and we we just have a hard time getting along because we need him. Well, there's two questions that you should ask about this oneness or unity. First question you should ask is, in what sense should we be unified? In what sense does Jesus want us to be unified? The second question you should ask is toward what end Are we to be unified? What does that accomplish? And Jesus answers both of those questions. And you've got to do a little bit of digging to get the answer to the first one. But it's super important that you do. Here's what Jesus says. Chapter 17, verse 11. We're here in John. That they may be one. How are we to be one? You see it there? Even as we are one. Jesus takes the full nature and the total force of the unity between God the Father and God the Son. And he says, I want the church to be united like us. And it's perfect. Jesus desires that we be one even as he and the Father are one. Inevitably, As people in the New Testament day would have been reading this, they would have heard in these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that which they cherished as a worship offering became an ethical guideline for the way that they lived and a petition before the Lord that Jesus is praying for them. Then he repeats it. He repeats it in verse 21, then in verse 22, verse 23, the same standard of oneness. Just as the Father and the Son are one, the church must be one with one another. So, if we're answering the question as Jesus did, we must answer that we're to be one in the way that God the Father and God the Son are one. Then the next question should become, how are they one? In what way are they united? And there are many ways we could unpack this this morning, but there are at least three ways that I see, three big ways in the text that the Father and the Son are one, and that translates into our relationship with one another. Number one, or letter A, is a unity of heart. A unity of heart. The picture here in John 17 is one of relational unity. It's a relationship, a relationship that has, by the way, according to Ephesians 2, first been restored between us and God, and secondly, between us and one another. Christ followers love each other, and Jesus desires, prays for that relationship to be healthy. That love, that unity of relationship to be present, both locally in those 11 men, those that they would lead, the individual churches that would begin to be planted and the church universal and those that would be in the 19th, 20th century here in America. Jesus desires that we would 
have relationship, love one another. Look at the pictures here of relationship. Verse 21 and 23, the father is in the son. It's an indwelling kind of a picture. Again, verse 21, the son then is in the father. Likewise, verse 21, believers are in the father and in the son. And then you get toward the end, verse 23, verse 26, the Son is in believers. And those are not to be understood as all these different indwellings, but rather that there is this oneness that exists. We are in Christ. Paul constantly says there is this oneness between God the Father and the Son and among believers. You see, then that picture results in love. John 17, verse 23. I am them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Or verse 24. That they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is a a unity of heart. It's relationship. And we've seen this commanded even before Jesus prayed for it. John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet, the serving them, the bowing before them, even as they were created to bow before him, he humbled himself and became their servant and showed them then a model that they should serve one another. Only to end the chapter, verse 34, in a new commandment that they love one another just as he loved us. It's love. John 15 the abiding uh, picture that we see in Christ, the vine and the branches. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And where does that land? These things I command you so that you will love one another. And then John 17, Jesus prays that it would be so. One of the greatest threats to the unity of the church is when the church fails to love one another well. When we have divided hearts. When we value our opinions and our preferences over one another. When we have to get our way or be right or avenge ourselves when we're unwilling to forgive, when we're not quick to overlook a fault, when we tend to use our words as weapons rather than agents of healing and encouragement. The unity of the church is constantly under threat because we have a hard time loving one another Well, but Jesus both commands it and prays for it, and he has purchased it by his blood. A love that was poured out on us with the greatest sacrifice anyone could ever know when Jesus laid down his life on the cross. The Bible says greater love is no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends, and Jesus has done this for us. Even so, we are to love one another in the same way. Be one as the Father is one. United in heart. Secondly, it is a unity of mind. Unity of mind. That's the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for when he prays here. The Father and the Son are united in will and purpose. We see that over and over, but Jesus begins the prayer there, doesn't he? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent sent. It's a picture of mission, purpose, will, his desire to save and to do so only through his son. 
Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Will, purpose. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is an eternal plan. See, it's about kingdom, mission, will, and purpose. All of that has to do with the mind. When Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. He's not talking about multiple truths. He's not talking about your version of truth. He's talking about one truth. God's word. It's a unity of mind. A unity of truth. Because it's all built on His holy word. It's not subjective. It's not emotional. It is heart, but it's not first and foremost heart. It is first and foremost objective. It never changes. Some have claimed that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been of one mind. And we are to have the same mind which is in Christ. Do you remember Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus was accused of having a demon? And he says the kingdom divided against itself will not stand. You see, the kingdom of God is not divided. And hear me, church. The only way that the church will stand is if the church is of one mind. And that mind must be the mind of Jesus. His word is truth. It's what Paul said in Philippians 2. We're to have the mind of Christ in us. Our minds are not built on cultural whims or emotional highs and lows. We don't change with the wind. Our circumstances don't dictate the way we understand the world. Our minds are built on the unchanging word of God. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. And by the way, Philippians chapter two is another unity passage. The mind is a humble mind, a kind mind, a mind that sacrifices for one another. We have unity of mind in Christ. Let me just say before we move to this final one that we must know the difference between truth and convictions. Sometimes in the church, we elevate our traditions and even some of our convictions that are not absolutely clear in God's word. We elevate them to the level of truth. And then we expect everyone else around us to live in the same way. And that brings division in and of itself. Be of the same mind. And Jesus prays for that. There's one final way that we should understand this. And that is a unity of character. Unity of character. Remember that the whole trajectory of the Gospel of John is to remind us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That we would see His identity, His nature, His worth, His character. And that we would call that good and that we would come to know Him and love Him and put our faith and trust in Him and believe the Gospel and therefore have eternal life. Perhaps that's no clearer than in John 14 when Philip was asking, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the very character of God. They are one in character. Everything that God the Father is, Jesus is. And listen to the way that Jesus addresses the Father. He calls him in verse verse 11, Holy Father. It's a character thing, right? He calls him righteous father in verse 25. It's a character thing. It's a moral statement. And Jesus is as righteous and as holy as the father. They are united in this. And Jesus prays that we would be one even as the father is one. Not only that, but adds to it, sanctify them. Keep making them like me because as they are like me, they will be like you. Be one with the character of the Father. Think back to Philippians 2. This picture of humility and counting others as more significant than ourselves and being a servant, all of these things, these are character traits. 
They're not just actions. And they are to be in us just as they are in Christ. Again, one of the greatest threats to the unity of the church is when the church is divided in character. When we're not all living like Jesus. Pride, unforgiveness, bitterness, selfishness, the list could go on and on and on. These are core character issues. Now, we're not one with the Father in the t- in, like Jesus is in the sense that we're God. We, we don't become gods. Any religion that tells you that is false. It's a false Christ and it does not save. However, we certainly can be like Jesus in his moral character. And this is what Jesus prays for. Be one as he is one with the Father. So then the second question, toward what end does Jesus desire unity? We won't take a lot of time on this, but verse 21, you'll see it. And then you'll see it again in verse 23. So that, anytime you see so that in Scripture, it, in, it indicates that a reason is following it. Why is Jesus praying for this? Here's why. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Listen to this very closely. The unity of the church is a declaration of the gospel to the world. The unity of the church is a declaration of the gospel to the world. When we don't love one another, we nullify our witness. But when the opposite is true, when we love one another well, then the very gospel we preach grows feet and legs and people see it in action. It's validated by our unity. And so we must love one another. It's just expressing what Jesus said to them in John chapter 16 and is now praying for them in John chapter 17. Before we close, there is actually one last petition. If you're careful, you'll notice it. But it is a petition that is different than all of the rest. It is a petition that specifically relates to all of the other petitions. Because when Jesus is praying in all the other petitions, he's praying for disciples that are still on earth. The last petition he prays for those who will ultimately be with him. Verse, 20, or verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. End of verse 26, that love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. It is a final culmination of all that Christ has prayed for, that when it comes to the end, all of it will be true. That the one who started a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That the one who says, I can present you faultless before the throne, actually does it. Which leaves us with this truth. Jesus not only intercedes for us every day, but he intercedes all the way to the end. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? All across this room, some of you are struggling with various things this morning in various ways. Maybe physically, maybe facing just the difficulty of being in a a world where people don't love Jesus. And sometimes that brings pain and trouble. Jesus said that in chapter 16 that it's coming. Maybe you're there right now. And you're just striving every day to follow Jesus. And, and you just, man, you just need somebody praying for you. Can I tell you that your Savior, if you know Jesus this morning, that your Savior is pleading your case and that you are not alone. Maybe you're here this morning, you're struggling with something spiritually. That temptation that has been so nagging at you. The, the old man that seems to rise up again and again and again. And I just want to encourage you 
Turn to Jesus. He's pleading your case. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And today, His strength will be made perfect in your weakness. If you'll turn to Him. You'll surrender to Him today. Or maybe you're here in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that there's a Savior who died for you. And we, we want to show Him to you because He saves and He will intercede for you and love you all the way to the end. Would you trust Him today? Would you put all of your faith and trust in Jesus today, knowing who He is as Savior and Lord and giving your life to Him today? In just a few moments when we stand, I want to invite you to come. This altar is going to be open, a time for you to pray, a time for you to make other decisions that you may have that God has laid on your heart this morning. You just need to obey Jesus today. And some of you need to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Whatever the case is, I want to invite you to come down this aisle. The altar will be open. I'll be down front. If you're following Jesus today, just come. Pastor, I, I want to follow Jesus today, and I'll help you with the rest. Maybe you just want to come and pray or somebody to pray with you. You do that now during this time. All across the room, would you stand with me? And as I pray, you begin to come this morning. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would have your way in this place. We come before you and we surrender our lives to you fully. That you would be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as Dylan leads us. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.